Welcome to Room 106. I'm Richard Garlick from Planning Magazine. And I'm John Gagan, also from Planning Magazine. This is a bonus edition in which we'll be discussing how political parties are likely to adjust their planning policies in the light of May's local election results. But before we get into that, John, tell us about the key news stories from the past seven days. Well, we've had some big announcements made early this week from the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, and the Housing Secretary, Michael Gove. The fact that the Prime Minister was involved obviously shows how significant the government thinks these announcements are. And the aim is to increase housing delivery and economic growth. And there's a lot of planning initiatives are included. Among the announcements are the creation of what the government describes as a planning super squad to help unlock major housing developments. The government describes this as a team of leading planners and other experts charged with working across the planning system to unblock major housing developments. Alongside that, they also announced more funding for local authority planning team resources, including £24 million for a new planning skills delivery fund, and also confirming that higher planning application fees would be introduced. There was an announcement of a focus on what the government described as inner city development. So focusing housing delivery on urban areas, including a new urban quarter in Cambridge with new homes and lab facilities In a speech yesterday, Michael Gove said he wanted to create what he described as a second Docklands in East London as part of a huge regeneration drive involving 65,000 new homes. Also, very significantly, the government announced changes to permitted development rights um, to make it easier to create new housing and for homeowners to build upwards and outwards. Uh, It's considering whether design codes should apply to some of these rights. And among the changes are allowing hotels, boarding houses and guest houses to convert to housing under new permitted development changes, and also changes to the uh, controversial Class MA, commercial to residential permitted development rights. And these changes were outlined in a consultation that was published Late yesterday, they're also promising changes to local plans to make them, in their words, simpler, shorter and more visual. Again, a consultation was launched on this late yesterday. Uh, Another big announcement is that developers will be required to include a second staircase in any new residential development over 18 metres high, which is significantly lower than the 30 metre threshold that had been previously proposed In other news, there was a big and very controversial planning decision from Michael Gove at the end of last week. The Secretary of State refused retailer Marks and Spencer's controversial plans to demolish and redevelop its landmark Oxford Street store. And the refusal was on design and heritage impact grounds. And what's interesting is it was against the advice of his own planning inspector. And Marks and Spencer's chief executive has hit back in a very strongly worded statement that slammed Gove's decision as nonsensical and utterly pathetic. And he said it leaves the firm having to review its future on Oxford Street. And finally, there was a significant court decision 
the High Court has quashed a planning inspector's refusal of a developer's application to amend conditions that were attached to a permission for an employment park on a former quarry in the Greenbelt in Sunderland. And the judge described parts of the inspector's decision as entirely baffling. Okay, well, many thanks for that, John. And of course, more details on each of those stories can be found on planningresource.co.uk. Okay, so now to return to Room 106 for our deep dive. In several parts of the southeast, May's local elections saw incumbent Conservative administrations apparently being punished for their house building plans. Yet at the same time, Sakia Starmer was promising that a Labour government would force councils to meet housing need, and some senior Tories were arguing that the party had to embrace planning for more housing in order to win back younger voters. So, now the dust has settled, what lessons about planning for housing will the parties take from the May polls? I'm going to head into Room 106 to find out. Can I persuade you to join me, John? I'm afraid I have a prior engagement, Richard, so very reluctantly I'm going to have to let you go in there by yourself. See you later. Fair enough. Well, here I am again in the cavern in which all new planning information gathers. I need to find the corner of the chamber in which local election results and associated commentary are collected. I'm looking for our special correspondent, Joey Gardner, who spent a lot of time down here researching a recent article. I think he might be in the cave at the end of this murky passage, where they keep some of Room 106's lighter reading. Ah, hello, Joey. Hi, Richard. So, first of all, put us in the picture about how issues related to planning for housing played out at the ballot box. Well, I think the local elections were largely played out along, I guess, lines that we've become fairly familiar with over recent years, in particular in the southeast of England, where the Conservative Party appeared to get or bear the brunt somewhat of um, anti-development or viewpoint from large parts of the electorate. And that is despite the Conservative government at a national level having advanced what some people would say as kind of anti-development planning policies in more recent months, potentially in a bid to kind of counter this view from the electorate. So I think one of the issues that the the Conservatives probably faced here is that they didn't get the credit that they perhaps wanted for that change in policy direction that they've laid out over the last six months or so. You know, if you've been in power for 13 years, it's quite hard for you to effectively get credit for disowning uh, policies that you've practised for the previous time you've been in power. And I don't think they they were largely trusted by the electorate on it. But there was also another strand happening at the same point in these local elections, which perhaps made it less familiar and from a planning perspective, also quite interesting in that Labour advanced a very strong pro-house building position in advance and in the run-up to the elections. And they didn't noticeably get punished or not in any significant way they didn't noticeably get punished for this at least not in I guess the areas in which the Labour Party appeared to be most targeting. But there was an impact on the Tory vote. 
it did feel like there was an impact on the Tory vote. You 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 only have to look at constituencies such as Windsor and Maidenhead or Wealdon, where where the, um, and Conservatives lost power in both of those, and the planning totally dominated those election campaigns, and uh, you know effectively kind of weaponized by the opposing parties that got in there. I mean, I think what we're seeing in a lot of these town areas is in smaller towns, I guess, particularly or or regional towns, is you have a need to build housing and that requires you either to build up or to build out. And the polling evidence and indeed the electoral evidence in a lot of these places appears to suggest that people don't really want either of these. They don't seem to like densification because it changes the character of these areas and they, and they don't want you building on green fields at the edge of the towns either. So it does leave local politicians in quite a difficult place when it comes to actually providing the homes that their analysis of their areas would suggest are, are, are needed by their local populations. Yeah. So we saw places that, that were planning for housing you know, the incumbent suffering. But is there any evidence that incumbent parties were, in some instances, punished for failing to plan housing? This is an argument that people are advancing, that incumbent parties in particular, the fact that there is this deepening and growing housing crisis, incumbent parties are being punished for essentially failing to build enough and for the fact that people's children can't find places to live, first-time buyers can't get that first step on the ladder, and that that dissatisfaction has to find an outlet. However, it is nigh on impossible to actually pinpoint this anywhere. There's not a constituency you can really see this playing out in, not least because in those southeast areas where development tends to be a big issue at the ballot box at local election times, you, you actually don't find parties making very, very big pro-housing arguments. So effectively, those kind of arguments don't really get tested at the, how they're at the ballot box. You either get people saying nothing about housing or you get people making an anti-development case at the ballot box. So it's quite hard to see what would happen when uh, someone made that pro-housing case. There are some people who argue that um, authorities that haven't produced a local plan and therefore have seen people win permission at appeal, and I think Wealdon was uh, given as an example of that, that they might have been beaten with that stick by their political opponents saying, you didn't plan and therefore you left us vulnerable and the lack of a plan left us open to speculative development. But you suspect in those cases that the same opponents, you know, or might well have beaten them with uh, with another stick, you know, if they had produced a plan and that had some unpopular land allocations in it. That unfortunately does seem to be one of the one of the lessons of these um of these local elections. Wealdon certainly is one of those examples of the failure to get a plan in place and the openness to speculative development being used as a as a political stick to beat the incumbent party. And, you know, you might immediately look at that and say, well, maybe that's evidence of the system working, working as it should be. But in other areas, such as the very well-known case of kind of Windsor and Maidenhead, you have a local authority who just got a plan in place 
and they are being beaten by the stick of having got a plan in place that is unpopular for having too many homes in it and some of those theoretical allocations being in unpopular places. So it feels like in terms of planning for houses in these kind of shire areas where development is unpopular, doesn't feel like there's an easy way out at this point. If one was to sum up the election results by saying that the Tories suffered from the NIMBY vote in the shires, is that an accurate depiction or is it a bit crude? Does it, does it miss some of the nuances? I think it's pretty accurate, really. I mean, certainly the NIMBY vote, the anti-development vote, damaged the Conservative Party in these local election results. I suppose the nuance perhaps that it misses is it's not clear to what extent that damage came from that reason, as opposed to you know people wanting to give the um, party of uh, government at a national level a kicking anyway, given you know all all the other issues that might well be playing uh, playing into that. The other issue is Conservative Party themselves at a local level has often been themselves campaigning against homes and saying that they want to stop homes being built. So it's quite difficult to exactly determine what exactly people are voting for. But it seems that if the Conservatives at a local level are pushing out this message of being anti-development themselves, it's not really being trusted. And so they're losing out anyway, despite having this message. Can you explain to me how it is that the Tories are, are, are struggling in some places to win votes on a anti-development ticket, yet they're also being punished if they're incumbents, if they have planned to meet housing need or, or, or close to it in many places. And yet Labour is confidently going ahead with a national policy which says we're going to be much tougher about ensuring that local areas do meet housing need. And you said that they didn't seem to have suffered for sending out that message. So why is it that Labour seems to be able to give that message without suffering, whereas the Tories seem to be getting a kicking for pursuing targets that would uh, that would meet local housing need? Well, I think for the Conservative Party, I think partly this is a problem of incumbency. To an extent, the Conservatives are trying to have it both ways. They still have a 300,000 homes a year target at a national level, yet national policy they're looking to change in a more anti-development manner. And the upshot is that their position is pretty confused. They've been in power for 13 years and uh, people on either side of the debate are not really trusting them and willing the, willing to give them a hearing, I think. So I think that's that's probably the, um, the point about the um, Conservatives. I think the Labour feels confident in making its pro-housing case because it feels that housing is an issue, I think, that resonates with the people that it feels are likely to either be voting for Labour or perhaps more importantly, considering voting for Labour at the next general election and potentially even more important than that particularly this is an issue that that resonates with those people considering voting for Labour in the seats that Labour needs to be picking up at the next election so I think the evidence 
that this is something that Labour can feel confident about is that they they made this case very strongly in the week before the election and they ended up after the uh, the vote with the highest number of councillors that they've had in local politics for over 20 years. Now, it is true that Labour didn't do particularly well in, you know, what we think of as blue wall areas, you know, those those shire areas in the south and southeast. So you might well say that is there an extent to which this message was not popular there? Perhaps, but that could simply be a result of tactical voting. Um, you know, it, it, one of the one of the other lessons from these local local election results is there appeared to be an increase in, in tactical voting and it may just be that voters in those areas felt that the Lib Dems were had a greater prospect of um, beating the um, Conservative incumbents in those areas. But I, I think probably either way, Labour is likely to be relaxed about this. And and one of those reasons is that if they feel that they're the only party making a pro-development case, they can use development as a as a wedge issue to split the anti-development vote, which which may go kind of equally between people choosing to vote Conservative, Lib Dem or Green, because all of those parties will tend to make uh, anti-development messages at a local level. So it's something they can hope to use as a wedge. I, I think that's where a lot of their tactical as well as strategic thinking on this comes from. OK, but I was interested to see that in um, part of your article, you did talk to a couple of people who, despite being fairly passionate advocates of more house building, weren't convinced that Labour wasn't making a rod for its own back and giving the the Tories an opportunity by um, saying that they would be the party that championed meeting housing need. The jury is out on this issue. I mean, there's there is definitely quite strong polling evidence to suggest that at a local level, uh, pro-development stances don't tend to play that well. They do tend to play quite well at a national level. So there's a kind of a paradox there. And, you know, the, the, the issue with development policies and issues to do with tackling the housing crisis it, it is about squaring this circle. It's a national need. It's, you know, the housing is, is deemed to be a national crisis, but it, you need to find local and individual places to meet it. So Labour at the moment feels that it's confident enough that it can make this argument, but there are certainly people that, that think that this could end up being a strategic error for Labour, particularly, and, and actually this didn't happen until until after the local elections, but after the local elections, um, Keir Starmer started talking about using Greenbelt and relaxing Greenbelt rules, and there are plenty of people that would say that potentially could be an electoral gift in certainly in blue wall areas for the Conservative Party. And, you know, it could be a motivating reason to stop potential floating voters moving, you know, or dissatisfied Conservative voters from moving away from the, 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 the Conservative Party. You know, they would tell them that, well, if you vote Lib Dem, you might let in a a Labour government that will um, allow people to build all over the green belt. So we will see. I think the jury is is still out on this. And I think also one of the evident, pieces of evidence from the, the research 
that I did is that, you know, the Labour Party itself is by no means above itself having a bit of local flexibility and discretion about this. The leader of Medway Council didn't seem madly keen on meeting the housing numbers suggested by the standard method for housing and was not keen on on converting Chatham Docks to housing, which is an absolutely key site for uh, enabling their local plan to get approved. So, you know, (laughs) we will see how all these issues actually kind of play out in reality. How about the Tories? Are they, um, is there much sign that they're about what kind of lessons they're taking from these results in terms of the sort of policies they're going to carry forward? One of the reasons, and sorry, this is a a roundabout way of answering your questions, but I think one of the reasons that Labour is so happy to be positive about this policy is because the Conservative Party is so very clearly divided on it. And so if the Labour Party sets the agenda on it and you get a media debate around this, it the Conservative Party ends up looking weak because it is internally very opposed to this. You have two different wings of the Conservative Party and they you have the, the kind of free market, for want of a better word, kind of Thatcherite-derived wing and you you have the, the more traditional kind of Shire Tory wing and they come from almost diametrically opposed viewpoints on this. One, one wants more development and the other doesn't. So this is a very thorny issue for the Conservative Party and it's quite hard to see a way forward The upshot is that it's hard to see any other real solution other than a compromise in which they do propose more, you know, continuing to build homes. But none of those homes, or or they they keep those homes as far away as possible from any of their core Conservative voters, so from any, any of their shire areas. So they put them as much in cities and effectively, crudely, in kind of Labour voting areas as, of course, they are effectively doing with the uplift to housing needs figures in the 20 biggest urban areas. Well, that's the upshot of that policy. I mean, of course, they would argue that that is not a political measure, that there are sound planning reasons for that. But, yeah, of course, those 20 authorities are overwhelmingly Labour. So, you know, that is an inevitable consequence of that policy. But you could potentially expect to see more of the same, really, of, of similar kinds of policies coming forward. And certainly not, as many planners would argue, a deviation from the urban uplift, because it's not widely seen in the sector as, as having very much evidence based behind it. But it's hard to see within the Conservative Party any reason or any way that the party at its current state could move away from it. I've come away from a, a, well, reading your article and, and one or two other things, feeling that a lot of people who, for excellent reasons, feel that the country has got to, has got to do a lot more to meet housing need, have desperately tried to sort of read the, read the runes from these local elections in ways that indicate that actually the political climate is, is moving to a more favourable stance towards planning to, to meet housing need. And of course, you know, if you've got one of the two major parties actively backing that, I guess that on one level that does demonstrate that. But it does seem actually that if you're trying to look for evidence of 
politicians succeeding by taking a very active approach towards meeting housing need and actually championing meeting housing need. It's as hard as ever after these elections. Is, is that unfair? I don't think that's unfair. It's, it's still very, very difficult to find politicians outside of the major cities who are making really, really strong pro-development cases at a local level. I mean, it's always been much easier and, and in many ways it's always been possible to make those cases at a national level and plenty of governments have done that. But the proof has always been in the pudding around local elected politicians making those cases and it's still very, very hard to see that happening outside of the major cities. Now, we didn't; these local elections didn't have polls in London and in a number of the major metropolitan centres. So we may have had a different view on that had, you know, more of those city authorities been tested. But from the constituencies, authorities that are up for election here, there were few examples of people getting elected, few if any examples of people getting elected on explicitly manifestly pro-development mandates. Well, uh, uh, slightly downbeat um, uh, ending, but um, for those of us who, who anyway, who, um, who think that we're just not meeting need at the moment. But thank you very much anyway for that, Joey. And uh, I'll leave you here in this uh, particular corner of, uh, of Room 106. I, 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 I hope I see you before next May, um, uh, but um, uh, I, I'm sure we'll, uh, we'll bump into each other in another corner of, uh, of Room 106 soon. I hope to see you soon, Richard. Great, that's another edition completed. We'll be back next week with another update on the past fortnight's biggest planning news stories. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe wherever you normally get your podcasts and to get a daily bulletin of planning news plus weekly analysis and specialist bulletins subscribe at planningresource.co.uk. Our thanks to producers Nav Pal and Hannah Holt from Haymarket Business Media and Daisy Chaku from Rethink and thanks for listening.